Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor, and today I am joined by our executive pastor, Pastor Ryan Wright. Pastor Ryan, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. You didn't really have much of a choice, did you? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are working our way through the New Testament part of the reading plan, and this week we want to chat about John 19 through James 2. So, Pastor Ryan, I think the best way to do this will be If we kind of talk about the end of the book of John first, then we will intro James and then kind of go from there. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Well, are there any insights that you want to give about the end of the book of John? Well, when I think about John 19, towards the end of the book, um, obviously it's talking about the death of Christ and also the resurrection. Right. And we know as Christians that the resurrection is the pivotal point. Even Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 that Mm -hmm. if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is void. Right. And so someone who really sticks out to me is uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Hmm. Now, when people think about people in the scriptures that made a great difference, I doubt if he's one of the main people. Not one of the first ones to come to mind usually. (laughs) But actually without him, we do not have such a tight – I don't know, I have to say like a tight view of the resurrection. Right, right. I mean, he actually makes the difference. From a historical perspective. From a historical perspective. If you think about it, um, with Joseph of Arimathea and the tomb being empty, Mm -hmm. he made a big difference. Uh, A lot of times what they would do is for criminals, they would take their bodies and throw them into some, you know, dump heap or something like that. Right. But when Joseph stood up and said, you know, I'll take his body, they absolutely knew where the tomb would be. He was a very famous man. Mm-hmm. But another thing that makes it of great interest is that people, scholars, even if they don't believe in Christianity, they recognize this part of the story is not made up because right. it's called the um, principle of embarrassment. You never, if you're gonna make up a story, you never make the enemy the, be- the good guy. Look good, right. And so what happens is they're all flee, they're scared to death, mm-hmm. and yet, Joseph of Arimathea, he was on the great Sanhedrin, so he is part of the elite. Now, we don't know if uh, when they had their council, if he was actually there to counsel judging Jesus. Maybe he didn't say anything. They don't tell us that story. But at this point, we notice that he stands up, he asks for the body. And so this is, in a sense, to the disciples, this is the bad guy. Right. And so they don't feel that he would have made that up. Mm -hmm. And also... It's a specific tomb. It's Joseph's tomb of Arimathea. And so it's not like you could forget where the body's at or say, well, you know, it's a third tomb on the left. Ooh, I forget. They absolutely knew if you're going to look for the body, this is the exact tomb. And in fact, all you had to do is one thing to stop Christianity, show the body. Show the body. They never, never could show the body. Exactly. And the text actually says the tomb was nearby. It specifically says nearby. So it's not like this tomb was way out somewhere where nobody had a clue where it was. Exactly. Everybody knew where this tomb was. Exactly. And they knew whose tomb it was. It was 
Joseph of Arimathea. So there's no chance that they somehow lost the tomb or, or didn't know where it was. And again, like I say, they knew that this was the, in a sense, from their perspective, the disciples' perspective, a bad guy. So right. they would have never They never made would have glorified this guy. Exactly. Yeah. And to add to that principle of embarrassment, if we flip over to chapter 20, in the first couple of verses, we see that it's women who actually discover the empty tomb. Right. And in the first century, a, a woman was not considered to have a legitimate testimony. Like in a court of law, in a Jewish court of law, a woman could not testify. Right. So if you're making up this story, you're never going to say that a woman discovers the empty tomb. You know, the thing is, I was thinking, if you're writing this and you're John, you're probably going, oh, man, right? I don't want to put Joseph of Arimathea in there. Yeah. I don't want to put that the women did this. I often talk about Peter. You know, when Peter denies Jesus, you can tell that this stuff isn't made up because you know what you'd be doing if you made it up. You Taking say, that part out. Yeah, don't put that in <laughs> there. Peter, at least. <laughs> I was the one. I was the hero in the right. story. Yeah, they're, they're embarrassing themselves. So it adds to the legitimacy of the historical account. So that's one thing that really stuck out to me. Yeah. Plus, what I like about it, it talked about he um, secretly, you know, he secretly believed in the Lord. And right. so you can see that here's a man who probably didn't realize that he was going to make a difference for all eternity. Yeah, and he actually took a big risk, too, because here you are sympathizing with this man who was just killed, just mm. crucified. So this was a big risk for him. It was a I think, huge risk. I think we miss that sometimes when we just kind of read through this. One other thing that stood out to me in, in chapter 19 here, in, in verse 14, talking about Jesus' crucifixion, it says, Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. And I, I think this is a passage that's easy to just kind of – breeze through and kind of skip over, but what what's really the significance here? And I, I always like to say, to understand the New Testament, we have to have at least somewhat of a grasp on the Old Testament. Now, I, I know we're, we're mainly going through the New Testament part of the reading plan here, but one thing we can do with this podcast is help give some insight into the Old Testament sure. and how the Old Testament connects to the New Testament, because there, there's so many connections. So... Here, as, as we talk about the Passover, I want to go back to the book of Exodus. So remember in the book of Exodus, Israel is in slavery in Egypt. And of course, God raises up Moses to lead them out of slavery. And God performs these, these ten plagues to help lead them out of Egypt. And the last plague, if you remember, is the plague of the, the firstborn. So all of the firstborns in Egypt are killed except in the Israelite households where they have the blood of lambs applied to mm-hmm. the doorpost. So the, the angel of the Lord passed over those homes that had the blood of the lambs on the, the doorpost. That's why we call it Passover. Mm-hmm. The angel of the Lord passed over. So Israel was saved by the blood of lambs during Passover. So then if you, if you go back to the book of John, in, in the first chapter in John, he, he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Mm. All of a sudden, that takes on new meaning when you understand it in light of the Old Testament. And then when we go back to John 19 here, when he says it's the day of preparation for the Passover, this was the day that they would start to slaughter the lambs mm. for Passover. So the significance here is that John is basically saying Jesus is the new Passover lamb. Mm. He's the ultimate Passover lamb who was slaughtered for us. 
just as Israel was saved by the blood of lambs, we are saved by Jesus' blood. And in, in essence, he's starting a new exodus as well. So the first exodus was, was getting God's people out of Egypt, yeah. right? I like to say this new exodus is getting Egypt out of God's people, <laughs> right? Because yeah. instead of it just being a physical bondage that he's saving them from, He's saving us from our sins. It's a spiritual, it's, it's a true salvation. He's getting Egypt out of God's people. So Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb through whom people can find true salvation. So that's kind of the significance there. Again, I think we can tend to just kind of skip over that passage, but there's really a lot of meaning there. There is. Actually, I was thinking too, um, Josephus, who was a first century historian, mm-hmm. he was a Jew, he shared in his uh, material that there was about a quarter of a million um, lambs that were actually killed. Wow, yeah. So there's, a, I mean, it's a slaughterhouse. Imagine the smell. <laughs> I know. Uh, so it's like a slaughterhouse. Right. But in the temple, they had drainage that would actually take that blood out of the temple and it would flow into the Kidron Valley. Mm-hmm. So after Jesus was done in the upper room, it talks about he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Right. He would have passed through the Kidron Valley, and at that time there had been so much blood that would be spilled, it actually looked like a river of blood. So I've often thought wow. what it must have been like for him to actually go past into uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, past the Kidron Valley, and there seeing all that blood as a representation of himself and what yeah. he would do in just a couple hours. Wow. That must have been quite quite the sight. Another thing with the Passover I wanted to point out too is <clears throat> starting in verse 32 in chapter 19, it mentions how the Roman soldiers broke the legs of the criminals who were mm. crucified with Jesus, kind of speeding up their death. But they didn't break Jesus's legs. He yeah. was already dead. And so what's, what's the significance of that? Again, I think if we're just reading through this, you might think, why even include that detail? Why is that important? Well, in Exodus 12, 46, it specifically says that the bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. So mm. once again, John is identifying Jesus as the Passover lamb, the ultimate sacrifice for us. You know, and an interesting fact is one of the reason people, uh, the reason that the Romans would break legs is if you're on a cross, the way you die, generally speaking, is you hang and then you, you suffocate. Right. You can't breathe. You can't breathe. And so what a person would do is they would um, pick themselves up by their legs, take a breath, and then right. exhale, come down. And so they had a thing called a crucifragrum, which yep. is like, I would say, like a massive meat uh, mallet, and they would actually take a stroke, hit the shin bones, and just shatter the legs as soon as a person's legs were yep. you know, broken. Within you know ten ten minutes or so, they'd be dead. Yeah, the Romans were professionals at this for sure. They they knew what they were doing. One other thing I wanted to point out in this uh, chapter was in, in verse thirty, Jesus is on the cross, and he says, "It is finished." Mm. And in Greek, this is actually just one word. It's tetelestai, but he, he says so much in, in this one word. Yeah, one word. He's saying the full penalty of sin has been paid. The full penalty of your sin has been paid. It is finished. The full measure of God's wrath has been poured out. Hmm. And it, this word actually also carries the sense of fulfilling somebody else's will. So he's also highlighting his obedience to the Father as well. It is finished. He has fulfilled what his Father has called him to do, commanded yeah. him to do. So Jesus looks at our sin and he says, it is finished. Our debt has been paid. 
And right after that, I think it's interesting too, it says he gave up his spirit. It doesn't say Jesus died. He gave up his spirit. So Jesus had authority over death even here. He gave up his spirit willingly. He laid his life down. I think, Luke, there's actually a devotional part to this too where it is finished because I've been thinking about that. It's hard sometimes to trust in the finished work of Christ. Yeah. And so how many times have you done something wrong and you struggle when you ask for forgiveness, believing that God truly oh, forgives 100%, you. Yeah. And you know, it takes faith to do that. It Sometimes does. we'd rather pay it ourselves, you know, if somehow something bad can happen to us or we could beat ourselves up. But the truth is, at the cross, it is finished. He yep. took care of that. Absolutely. Yeah, how many times do we think, how could God forgive me? Exactly. There's no way. I've done way too many things wrong. But Jesus says here, it is finished. Our sin debt has been paid in full. Well, I think at this point it might be wise for us to move along to the book of James just to stay within our our time limit here. So moving on to James, just just to give a little intro here, James, we're talking about the half-brother of Jesus. We say half-brother because obviously Jesus was conceived by the the Holy Spirit, so we say half-brother of Jesus, but this is is different from James the Apostle, Mm -hmm. okay? When we say James here we're talking about Jesus' brother, not one of the 12. Yeah. Just, just James and John, you know how we often talk I about know, James the, and yeah. John. Everybody's named James and John in the, in the Bible. And what's interesting about James, the brother of Jesus, is that he w- actually wasn't saved until after the resurrection. Yeah. And 1 Corinthians 15 actually tells us that Jesus appeared to James after he rose from the dead. So that's, that's when he was saved. But John chapter 7 tells us that Jesus' brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah while he was still alive. So kind of interesting. But if you think about it, would you really believe that your brother is <laughs> the Savior of the world? No. You they, grow, grow up with this guy and he's claiming to be the Savior? I don't know. That would take a lot of convincing. <laughs> some people say that's probably one of the greatest proof for the resurrection. Right, yeah. What would it take for you to believe your brother it really is. was really God? Yeah. So we're talking about the half-brother of Jesus. We know he was martyred around 62 AD, so the book must have been written before then. But actually, most scholars think this book was likely written in the early to mid-40s AD, so it was probably the first New Testament book to be written, which is actually why we have this as the first letter that we're reading through in the reading plan. In the reading plan, we've kind of spread out the Gospels, but we're reading through the letters in a roughly chronological order. James was also a leader within the Jerusalem church. We know that from Acts chapter 15. Mm -hmm. And we know from the first verse of his book that he's writing to primarily a a Jewish audience, to Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, because he says in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So what's he talking about there? Well, remember in the Old Testament, Israel was taken into exile by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. And some were able to return to the area of Israel, but many didn't. So by this time when James is writing, there are Jews scattered throughout the Mediterranean Mm. region rather than just living in Israel, in geographic Israel. So he's writing to a broad Jewish audience throughout the Mediterranean region. And I, I think his main theme here is really living out your faith especially in the midst of trials. It's a fairly practical book. He's talking about what authentic faith looks like practically. And I think one verse that really 
encapsulates this is in the first chapter, verse 22, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers mm. only. So he's very concerned about his audience living out their faith from a, a practical sense. I, I like to call it kind of the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. It has a lot of short, practical statements. And one cool thing about this book, too, is there are actually a lot of echoes or references back to the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people don't realize that. But, for example, the verse I just read, chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word, that references back to Matthew seven twenty four, where Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Mm. So there's actually a lot of connections to the Sermon on the Mount. This book is kind of almost like an application of the Sermon on the Mount. So kind of a cool connection there. Any insights that you had, Pastor Ryan? Actually, one thing, talking about what you just shared, he says, you know, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Right. The problem with deception is we can't see it. Right. And so the scripture is very clear that if we hear the word of God and we don't put it into practice, deception comes upon ourselves. So then we oftentimes think we are what we're really not. We feel good about ourselves yeah. because we're we're listening to sermons. Maybe we're we're listening to podcasts. So we feel good because we're increasing in, in head knowledge in some way, but we're not living it out. Exactly. And that's what James is warning against. Well, one passage I wanted to point out is in James chapter 2. This is kind of a, a controversial passage, you could say. Starting in verse 14, he's talking here about faith and works. Right? This is something that gets brought up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So The controversy is, so you have Paul, for example, in Galatians 2, when he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ, right? So Paul is very clear, we are justified by faith alone. Faith alone is what what saves us. But then we come to James, and he says, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself, And then he goes on and he says things like, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the question is, are Paul and James at odds with each other? Yeah. Actually, Martin Luther struggled over yeah, this book. Yeah, right. Because, you know, he's the one who started the Protestant Reformation. Yes, yes. Just to be clear, we're not talking about Martin Luther King. We're talking <laughs> yeah. about Martin Luther from the 1500s. Exactly. The theologian, yes. And so he, he actually struggled over James's writing concerning this because, you know, Martin Luther's one who talked about, you know, faith alone. Right. So, yes, the, the question is, are Paul and James at odds with each other. And like Pastor Ryan said, this is something that has been kind of talked about throughout church history. And spoiler, the answer is no, they are not <laughs> at odds with each other. But really the, the key to understanding this, I think, is to understand that Paul and James are using the term faith in different ways. So Paul is addressing genuine faith. Paul is assuming true faith, yeah. genuine faith. James, the key to understanding what he's saying, if you look in verse 14 in chapter 2, he says, what good is it if someone claims to have faith? So he's addressing a bogus faith. Yes. It's not an authentic faith. So he's addressing a faith that involves kind of like what we were talking about, only intellectual knowledge, but doesn't lead to a changed life. So James is still putting the emphasis on faith, but he says true saving faith always leads to works because we, we can't surrender our lives to God and be filled with his spirit and not change. Right. A, surrendering to Christ will always lead to a changed life. And Paul agrees with this, too. If you, if you look later in the book of Galatians, Paul says that faith 
produces the fruit of the spirit. Right. Right. So Paul would Paul would agree with this. So both James and Paul agree. Faith is what saves us, but genuine faith always leads to a changed life. So one way we like to say it is faith is the root, yeah. works are the fruit. Yep. Right. And the root always produces fruit. Exactly. So ho- hopefully that makes sense. Any any insights you wanted to add there? No, I think what you said is perfect. Okay. So we, we just wanted to clarify that sometimes that can be a controversial passage. Any other insights from James or from John or anything you want to say as we kind of wrap up here? No, just for clarity's sake, like you said, you know, if you think about James and John, those were disciples of Christ. Right. But the James that is written here, the book of James, is the half-brother of Jesus. So these are two different people. Because that's often, like you said, misunderstood. Right. And this James was not a believer while Jesus was still doing his ministry, while he was still alive. Mm -hmm. But he saw the risen Lord, and as a result of that experience— he actually went on to write a book that is now in our New Testament, and he became a leader of the Jerusalem church. So again, a strong historical argument for the resurrection. The resurrection. Yeah. So kind of ending where we where we started there. All right, well, remember to keep listening to this podcast as we continue our journey through the New Testament. Remember, we want to help you get into the Word until it gets into you, and we want to equip you so that you can be a world changer. <laughs>